0: I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two
1: Nice Jewish Boys. Walking down the streets of Tel Aviv, it's practically impossible to ignore the humble yet still extraordinary architecture of this seaside city Rothschild Boulevard, the Tzedek neighborhood, Allenby Street. Certain parts of Tel Aviv really feel like a film shoot set in the early parts of the last century. One of the styles that strongly influenced this period, and today is so iconic to Tel Aviv, is Bauhaus, or more accurately, international style architecture. In Tel Aviv, you can't miss it. Minimalistic, aesthetically symmetric, low, and generally white, these buildings dominate the Tel Aviv landscape. But Bauhaus is more than just an architectural style. Its buildings tell the story of a certain part of Zionist history. To tell this fascinating story, we're joined by Igal Gavze. Igal is a photographer, artist, architecture graduate, and a Tel Aviv Bauhaus explorer. His careful examination of Tel Aviv's international style architecture has led to a photography exhibition, and now to a private walking tour of the White City. Igal's new book, Form and Light, From Bauhaus to Tel Aviv, is due to be released next month. We're excited to have Igal on the podcast to talk to us about the Bauhaus movement in Tel Aviv. This podcast is made in collaboration with the Jewish Journal.
2: One correction. Yes. You've mentioned the symmetry in connection with the with the international yeah. style. They were trying to break away from symmetry. Really? Yeah, yeah. Symmetry was considered by them as, you know, part of the historicism in architecture that they wanted to break away from.
1: So who's but they 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 broke away from it, I'm sorry. They broke away from it kind of like in an in a symmetrical way. Uh, in like, Tel
2: Aviv, it's true that in Tel Aviv, some of the Bajos buildings, yeah. when you are looking at them, have symmetric facades. But those are uh, the minority, really. Uh, Re- okay. Rebels. And normally, normally they are much more inventive. You know? I see. They okay. create a kind of uh, uh, sometimes the repetition order, but they, they try uh, not to have a symmetric facade normally. So who's they? they? they are the, you know, the pioneers, the Jewish pioneers of modernism. We are talking really about uh, young architects who either came here in the 30s, mm-hmm. uh, come they were educated in modern avant-garde schools in Europe, and because of the political situation in Europe in the 30s, they arrived here. And, you know, the population of Tel Aviv tripled uh, during that period. And obviously there was a need for habitation, And uh, they found themselves pretty busy, you know, designing this new, mostly apartment buildings for the immigrants that arrived. And there was a smaller group of young people who went from here to study, to study in Europe. and uh, In the 30s? In the tw- 20s and 30s. Yeah, The glorious period of, of Bauhaus in Tel Aviv is 1931 to 1937, that's really the, the high period if you want, and during that period about 3,000 buildings were constructed, and then the second period is 37 to 48, another 1,000 buildings, and that's one of the exceptional things about this heritage, the number of buildings which were constructed in in this relatively short time. So
1: so where did it originate? I mean, it originated from... The Weimar Republic from Germany.
2: Well, the Weimar Republic is uh, That's where the Bauhaus school was founded in 1919, and next year is going to be the centenary. Uh-huh. Uh, but this was not. This was one of the influences, you know, on the on the modernism of the 1920s. There was the. Russian constructivism is considered as one influence. Uh, there was Le Corbusier, of course, one of the forefathers with his purest architecture. That's another uh, influence. So it was a sort of, you know, different different uh, modernism trying to, to combine into one international style. And
0: Le Corbusier wasn't involved in Bauhaus school at any no, point?
2: No, no, Of course he knew them, etc. But he, he was wasn't. friendly with he was friendly with Gropius but the, he was not teaching there you know who who is that le corbusier that's no no uh, so, Gr- Gropius the, was the founder he's of Mr. the Mr ba- Bauhaus he's uh, you you might say he's Mr Bauhaus okay. yeah he founded the school and he designed the fanta- which was at the beginning was in uh, in uh, Weimar but then in 26 moved to Dessau this was the second site and that's where you find the amazing building that he designed for for the Bauhaus school oh, you know, what's which, his name again uh, the name of the architect? Yeah. Walter Gropius. Walter Gropius.
1: Wa- Walter Gropius. Gropius, yeah. Gropius okay. And
2: Le
0: Corbusier, who was also one of the biggest architects uh, yeah, yeah. of and the 20th century. Of,
2: and one of the biggest influences on, on modernist architecture. So
1: why? how did this, uh, this style, this school of architecture find its way to Tel Aviv and such. A, I mean, you explained that there were the Jewish refugees escaping mm-hmm. Europe mm-hmm. during this like turbulent time in history and brought it here. But why was it that they were so influenced by this school of architecture? Was well, it such a big deal in Germany back then?
2: Uh, yeah, there were graduates of this uh, avant-garde schools, mm-hmm. you know, the, the young architects and They liked, of course, this new modern style. as young people, obviously, they were uh, attracted to it. And
0: what made it avant-garde? Pardon? What made it avant-garde? The
2: breakaway from the symmetry, for example. You know, the the breakaway from the buzzard and mainly the breakaway from uh, from ornament. You know, one of the big slogans in in uh, of the international style is uh, ornament is a crime. Okay?
0: Against humanity against against humanity.
2: <laughs> and this is breaking away from historicism in, in architecture. No longer do you represent, you know, the, the, the sort of history of architecture on the facade. The big word now is functionalism. It has to be functional, you know, okay. it has to be functional. Then you may say it's good, it's beautiful. When the building is functional, then, you know, it's a success. Because
0: ornaments... Mm-hmm. are just uh, have no functionality to them right well they're the, purely they, d- decorative they're purely decoration right and this is wrong this is foul for them
2: for the modernists, this is wrong yeah yeah. to invest so much into something which is not yeah. functional you know which is there to make it beautiful but, but the- when you go around europe the mm-hmm. capitals,
0: all the buildings have ornaments right. almost right,
2: because they belong to another historical uh, historical uh, time and that's by the way one of the big differences between uh, looking at modernist or modernist architecture in Europe and in Tel Aviv because there you really have to go and look for the modernist building by Le Corbusier in Paris, you know, amidst the 19th century, uh, the Haussmannian, you know, urban fabric. And suddenly, you know, there is this white purist cube, the Le Corbusier. In Tel Aviv, especially in the three zones designated by UNESCO, you know, that's mo- not all of the building, but most of the buildings are in the same style and creating a certain, uh, you know, a, a certain urban landscape. Which is made of this modernist architecture, and that's a big difference, and that's one of the reasons for the importance of the site. Before we we
0: come back to Aitan's questions about a uh, question about the Jews, just to clarify about the Bauhaus school, uh, because the story of this it was very unique, right? In yeah. The school. Can you tell? Can you just tell a little bit about it and its principles, and how it functioned? What made it special what made it special was
2: the the idea of reconciliation between the crafts and the machine age that's one of the big ideas at of the Bauhaus school because they believed that they that you know good design should be enjoyed by everyone before only really only the rich people could afford the well-designed of ob- the beautiful objects we took you know, so much time and so many craftsmen to produce, as well as the, inter- the houses, you know. Uh, now, with the machine age, and that's the big thing, you know, you cou- you can design beautiful domestic objects and reproduce them in millions. Okay, so now everyone or most of the classes, let's say, can enjoy them because it's no longer, you know, a, a very expensive object uh, that can be enjoyed on only by the rich people. So that's that's one, one uh, uh, big idea together, of course, with the functionality, you know, and you look at uh, objects, uh, you know, designed at the Bauhaus school, they still look beautiful. I'm, it's not a question of beautiful. They look great today and they function beautifully today. It's, 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 you know, the cliché, it's timeless. So mm-hmm. if
0: I were in a, a student in the Bauhaus school, what would I be learning in my day-to-day? What were the classes?
2: Well, it depends which period uh, at the Bauhaus school, because the Bauhaus you know, school went through different periods, different. These months.
0: Jews we're talking about, for example, uh, for example. You know, the most
2: famous one is is Arya Sharon. You know, that's the most famous name uh, that uh, and a leading figure in in, in uh, local modernist architecture, and he went there from the from a kibbutz. Uh, he was a young man at the kibbutz. Went there, uh, I think he was accepted. Uh, to the to the school because he told Gropius uh, about the beehives that he was constructing at the kibbutz and the ingenious architecture of the beehives, you know, and that's what made him, you know, uh, enter the school without any problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that uh, the, the creative side of the school, you know, together with the practical things that they learned made it into an exceptional, exceptional experience there were you know famous names or famous artists teaching there so on one hand you had this really creative side to it and on the other hand you had the social uh, uh, sort of ideas behind it which i mentioned already that everyone should enjoy the, the the good design you know when it comes to and when it comes to housing as well you know so those two poles of creativity and functionality, you know, were certainly a, a great experience for, for many of these of this young students.
1: So I I'm, I want to go back to the question of why it, why do you think, I guess, because I'm, I'm not sure there's any kind of uh, um, uh, objective answer to this, but why do you think um, that it caught fire in, in Tel Aviv as opposed to to anywhere else.
2: Well, that's another facet of the story. Uh, There were these young architects who were educated in the modern uh, avant-garde schools who came here. And starting 1931, you could build only modernists in Tel Aviv. And that's thanks to uh, another figure, a local figure. Uh, This was the... Municipal uh, architect, uh, the engineer, the Tel Aviv engineer, who together with the with Rokach, the mayor at that time, they were both admirers of of the international style of modernist architecture. And in fact, although I don't think there was a bylaw, but it was known starting 31, you could build only modernist in Tel Aviv. Okay, so I say when I say only modernist in uh, contrast to the 1920s mm-hmm. which are known as the which are known as the eclectic period eclectic okay. period and this was the former generation of architects who mostly came from eastern europe places like odessa they brought with them their know-how you know their neo, really neoclassical architecture and they mostly tried to mix it with local Levantine motifs. So the result was a real mishmash. So when you go so in
0: Rothschild and you will see like arcs and, and exactly. ornaments and all kinds We're of things. We're talking about
1: buildings like uh, Hotel Montefiore yeah. or exactly. those, those style is mm-hmm. the eclectic mm-hmm. style. Exactly, okay. exactly.
2: So this is the real eclecticism of the 1920s.
0: Which today is also appreciated.
2: Very much, very much because it's, it's part of the story. You know, it's part. It's part of. Then, as they like to say, narrative, the local narrative, and it tells the story of a very specific period. Uh, but you know, starting '31, there is like an, an alignment. You really break away. You know, when you put a modernist uh, international style building next to an eclectic one, you can re- then you can really appreciate the, the 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 both styles, both styles, but the breakaway from. You know, the From diff- one mindset to another. Exactly. And it's very it's very clear. So uh, this was sort of, 31 was the turning point, you know. And there are, on, for example, on Rothschild Boulevard, when you go down, there is one corner when you see an eclectic building on the left, which all the guests that I have on the tour, the American ones, say, wow, it's like in Louisiana. You know, that's a, mm-hmm. the style. And then on the other corner, there is a, Bauhaus building, and those two were designed by the same architect in less than ten years. Okay, I think there was six-year difference, and wow. which tells you the story of this architect for of the older generation, not the young one, they had to transform their really practice, you know, because there was otherwise you'd out of job, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. There's the famous story about uh, rechter who refused to pass by his old um eclectic building okay. he was ash- ashamed of that you know the story no no the I grandfather don't. of yoni Rechter, the yeah. musician he was one of the arch they're a uh, family of architects and one of his uh, initial buildings in, in the 20s was in Nachalat bin yamin street yeah. right. and then uh he he just wouldn't walk past it in the 30s he was so ashamed mm-hmm. That he built in the eclectic style yeah ethan is looking at me <laughs> with how the hell do you know this thing <laughs> yeah how <Harder>. do <laughs>
2: well
0: i like he's I a like Bauhaus house ar- yeah enthusiast. i like architecture and but- after after
2: that period that period director went to paris and studied in paris and this is where he of course discovered le corbusier's work and was really highly, highly influenced by the Corbusier. And today, at the corner of Rothschild Boulevard and Maze, you have the Engelhaus by Rechter, which is the last stages of of uh, preservation. And that's like one of the iconic, most iconic buildings of, of the White City. Uh,
1: that's the blue one? It's, it's a... light blue, no?
2: No, mm-hmm. it's
1: now under construction.
2: Yeah, it's still it's still uh, the last stages of, of preservation. Oh, and okay. when, but in a month or two, I believe it will be, you know, out. And when you look at it, you clearly see the, the not the footprints, but you clearly see how Werther was was influenced by, by Le Corbusier. You know, it, mm. it, it, uh, ah, this
1: is already a modernist building. This oh is yeah, already, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, I absolutely. See.
0: So these Jewish architects, they come, many of them flee from the Nazis, basically, right? right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They come here and Tel Aviv is... There is. You have Tel Aviv in the twenties and the thirties, but you have also lots of sand, mm-hmm. right? So they come to a, a kind of a sandbox.
2: Well, it part of it were sand dunes, and part of it were uh, was agricultural land, you know, which belonged. Right,
0: but they have like an open canvas, and yeah, na- you and may now, say,
2: yeah, you may say,
0: which you don't have in Paris or,
2: or no. Berlin as easily as here. And
0: they take advantage of it to create the city. But they built also, there is, so where
2: does the Garden City come in? The Garden City comes before the story. It comes in 1925. Uh, Tel Aviv was founded in 1909. And at the beginning, they were dreaming of having a nice green suburb next to Jaffa. This was, you know, the the beginning of the dream. And very quickly, it changed into, you know, the little green suburb was growing up very quickly, amazingly quickly in fact, and as a result there was a problem of land speculation, okay? And people realized that, you know, it was the right time to, to buy and speculators uh, speculants were, you know, becoming too uh, active, you may say. And then dising of the Mayor in 1925 invited uh, Sir Patrick Geddes, Was here for the opening inauguration of the Hebrew University on Mount Scopus. Invited him to Tel Aviv, and Geddes spent two months here and came up with what
0: he was a city planner. He was a
2: city planner, yeah, working mainly in the, the colonies, the British colonies, and he, after two months, came up with what's known as the as the Geddes Plan. Okay, for mostly for the northern part of Tel Aviv. When I say northern, it's north of uh, of uh, the boulevard, uh, you know, going to um, Bugrachov and then Benzion Boulevard, north of this line, areas mm-hmm. which were not constructed yet. But it was a very organic, very sensitive plan which took into consideration the parts which were already built, connecting it to Jaffa, you know, Play, of course, taking into consideration the topography, the historical roads, uh, but this allowed for for the you know for the city to grow up north to towards higher con. At the time, Ibn Viral Street of today was the eastern front frontier of the city, so it was really you know between Jaffa. Uh, in the south, higher Con river on the north, Ibn Gvirol of today, and the sea.
1: To posted. give people some perspective, Evan Gvirol today is one of the, I guess you could call it, the central arteries exactly. of the city. Exactly. So beyond Ibn Gvirol, east of Ibn Gvirol today, you have another half of Tel Aviv, right. if yeah. not more. Yeah. Um, but you, you said the the Gades plan? Gedes. Gedes plan. So this is actually what's considered the garden city. Right. Yeah, this was
2: highly, Gettys' plan was highly influenced by the Garden City movement. Which which is? Which was an English movement from the end, really end of the 19th century, which was a reaction to the horrible living conditions of people in industrial cities like London, you know, following the Industrial Revolution. Then they came up with the idea of creating these green suburbs around the capital where the working class could live in, you know, good uh, hygienic conditions uh, and that's, these are the origins really of this urban movement and he took his ideas from there, except that here in the case of Tel Aviv you're not talking about a suburb, you know, the area north of uh, Bention Boulevard is not a suburb, you're talking about the heart of the city. So he had to increase the density, So, may, <coughs> so with the garden cities you might have buildings, I mean, of one, two stories. Here he went up to three and four stories.
1: So in 1925, Ben and Bugoshov were already part of the city? No, 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 no. Ah, yeah, that, were, that were, was, they so they then not, it was kind of a suburb. Yeah,
0: no, no, they were not. You know, But he planned not. it as the center of the city. He looked
2: long-term. Absolutely. Ah, he planned
1: it as the center. Absolutely, I because see. he
2: put the civic center in the place where... Um, you know a Halatorbu the cultural center is mm-hmm. today. he wanted right. it to be a civic center, and it came out uh, at the head of a Rotel boulevard, mm-hmm. okay and then the boulevard continues behind it
1: and I see so which back then would have been kind of close to the northern edge of the city? Right. he put the center mm-hmm. of the city and yeah. he was yeah. planning uh, for the city to expand absolutely. around that but
0: isn't the garden city synergic to the international style in the sense that like if you build on on, on pillars right, you expose the gardens.
2: Yeah, but that's the reason, that's one of the interesting things that, uh, no, it wasn't synergic with the, you know, this idea of modernism, Uh, it's not completely synergic with the garden city idea. That's one of the fascinating things that happened in Tel Aviv, that because of this idea of, again, of Le Corbusier, of using the columns, you know, that he calls the round ones that he calls Pilotes, you know, and put a lift to lift the residential space above the street noise the etc this way the garden can go underneath the building you know which, which you see often in Tel Aviv and you create a sort of an intermediate space between the public space of the street and the semi-privateness of the hallway of the entrance hall you know there is this extra space that normally does not exist if the building is sitting on the ground. Mm-hmm. If don't like in it.
0: European capitals. Exactly, exactly.
2: That's one thing. So that's a result of this. Com- so one of the interesting things in Tel Aviv is this combination between the urban ideas which are coming from the Garden City Movement and the uh, a- international style, you know. And this coincidence that while the urban plan was carried out according to GEDA's plan, into the ideas that really come from the you know from the end of the 19th centuries, uh, but the infill was modernist architecture, and that's also one of the fascinating things in the, in the story of the of the of Tel Aviv of the White City. This you know how these two ideas are combined, and the result. Uh, uh, a uh you know uh, qualities that you get like the example really of the of those gardens another great idea of uh, maybe one of the most important ones in the gettys plane is that all the buildings would be freestanding structures unlike european cities and then uh, some american cities where you connect the buildings mm-hmm. because of reasons of density here each building is a freestanding structure ideally surrounded by greenery. So it changes completely the urban landscape. Mm -hmm. You don't have this continuous facade. You are not going along a continuous facade. You have these gaps. This way, of course, each building is getting more light and Mm -hmm. more natural ventilation. And this is when the urban landscape is made of this, you know, you have these green gaps. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're not green and you see all the ugly, you know, laundry dryer drying up on the side. Depends, you know, it's not... But back in the day, everyone took care of their gardens. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Back in the good
1: days,
2: people would take care of their lawns. When
0: it's 40 degrees uh, Celsius heat... Yeah. And there's no AC. It helps if you're, if your building is surrounded by greenery. Of
2: course.: Of course of course. and part of the part of the functional ideas, uh, of course the most really the prominent element which makes a difference from the European modernism to the local one, uh, is the element of the balconies. Normally, in Europe, you have the, the facade, the modernist facade would be light and flat normally it's not that you don't have balconies there and here because of the adaptation of this architecture to the local conditions mainly the climatic conditions the element of the balconies is very prominent Mm -hmm. either recessed ones which are protected from the direct sunlight or the cantilevered ones and there as well they are trying to to create some shade
1: you want to i just
0: want to say that it's amazing the balconies because up until today like when you go and you look for an apartment in central Tel Aviv, the existence of a good balcony it's is something key. that it's key and people yep. like young people love it and adore it. Mm-hmm. And isn't it amazing how how much... People still value this element, yeah, after, even today. But you must say,
2: after years of closing them, you know, with ugly plastic shutters, or and then yeah, well. later, you know, there was a period when they, they didn't disappear, but they were sort of enclosed to add the space to the apartment. And now, in the last 10 years, there are sort of, it's the <laughs> rediscovery of this element, which is fantastic, especially for this weather, because you may enjoy it most of the year in the in this local climate so
1: So, uh you spoke earlier about um unesco the world uh unesco heritage sites and how there are three sections in tel aviv Could you tell us a little bit about those where they are and what's the since when do they exist and why
2: and why because this is where you have the highest first of all the highest concentration of the international style in the
1: world is it directly related to that the UNESCO heritage, meaning that's why it was
2: one of the reasons. Okay. I one see. of the reasons, yeah, certainly one of the reasons for design- the, this designation is is the high, the outstandingly high number, yeah, which you don't find often uh, in other sites.
1: And is it really the highest density in the world? In
2: Haifa, there in Haifa there are more. <laughs> I'm not sure. I haven't counted, but there are many. Yeah, and wonderful examples there. Eh uh, so there are three zones which make the which make the white city uh, the northern one is around using of circle okay the second one is along Rothschild boulevard and streets of the boulevard and the third one the smallest one is along bialik street you're going from alembi you're going up bialik street you get to the little circle in front of the old city hall, mm-hmm. which is now the museum of uh, Tel Aviv, museum. where the
1: poet Bialik
2: lives, right? On which the, is not a
0: Bauhaus building, no, 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 it's no. an eclectic that's, building, it's an
2: eclectic one. And then, when you turn on to the left, you continue to Edelson Street, and there is where well, there are some wonderful examples. In one of these buildings on Edelson Street is going to become the White City Center, the heritage center. Of uh, of uh, the White City, oh, wow. uh, yeah, building designed by Carmi and it's a cooperation between the Tel Aviv municipality and the German government, federal government, who put, I think, each side is putting the same amount of money, and that's going to be the the heritage center to be opened, I think, next uh, next year in September.
1: And is it? it, it I mean, maybe I'm uh, revealing the ignorance, but is it called the White City because of the fact that Bauhaus is generally white, or is that uh, unrelated?
2: Well, there are arguments about it, and you know, not all the buildings were white. Okay. You know, the purest, uh, the purest uh, sort of cor- Corbusier architecture is white, and for example, Engel, the Engel House on the corner of. Rothschild and Mother is, yeah, is a good example for it. But uh-huh. not, all, not all of them are white. And then the, we are getting into discussion of... It's a PR how, move. It's, yeah, how to create a local myth and
1: then... Uh, is that what the white, ha- white City, though, references? Is it referencing the Bauhaus movement or is the White City... No, uh, no, 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 no. Oh, okay. There
2: is a White City project in Berlin, for example, of modernist housing. Ah, okay. okay. Which is also called uh, Stadt, the Weiße Stadt, the White City, you know. And here, I think it picked up and uh, somehow fitted into, as you say, the PR. Uh,
0: the I think you can trace the term back to even the 60s. There's the song, vana. I don't know how far back it goes. Yeah. But um, but I guess they took they took Tel Aviv municipality took this term which was already, already existed and made it as part of the PR movement, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which resulted because of the UNESCO declaration, right? So the UNESCO declaration really turned around Tel Aviv. Absolutely. How so?
2: Absolutely. You know, 2003 was the, the designation, the declaration. And this followed already 20, almost 20 years of, you know, awakening, let's say, the interestingly, the first event that sort of mar- you can say it marked out the outcome of of the, the all this heritage was an exhibition at the Tel Aviv Museum of Art in 1984. Okay, this was the 75th anniversary of Tel Aviv. Unfortunately, at the time, the the sort of the cultural attaché of the of the mayor was Michael Levin, Professor Michael Levin, who is an uh, architectural historian and who is the specialist of this, you know, of this architecture here in this country. And he had the idea to put up an exhibition uh, which was called White City, okay, about this modernist international style architecture here in this uh, country in the, in the 30s, mostly in the 30s. By the way, in the exhibition, he showed examples not only of buildings in Tel Aviv, but also in Haifa, uh, in Jerusalem, at uh, the Kibbutzim, all over. And this is sort of caught fire. And I remember myself, like so many other people, uh, visiting the exhibition, looking at these period photographs of uh, buildings in Tel Aviv, black and white, of course. And saying that's impossible—it's not in Tel Aviv. We don't have buildings like this in Tel Aviv because it was neglected. Over because the years. it fell, yeah, it was really dilapidated, and over the years fell into neglect. And people only sort of specialists knew that it was there, but it was after, under layers of dirt, neglect, additions—you know, transformations, you know, etc. So this was the sort of the starting point, Eighty-four, <clears throat> sorry. Ten years later, there was an international conference co-sponsored by the municipality of Tel Aviv and UNESCO about this heritage in '94 and nine years later the UNESCO designation and in exactly 20 years afterwards in 2004 they had the big celebration you know of uh, accepting you know of uh, the, the, this designation and what
0: changed then?
2: Over, well, it started before, with the sort of re- awakening and renewal. People started to realize what they had, you know. And at the beginning, it was very slow, you know, the the sort of the rediscovery of the heritage. But you started to see here and there. You started to see the first of uh, renovated, at the time you may say, renovated buildings. You know, from out of the all these dilapidated. A uh, urban landscape. Suddenly, you see the white façade which are sort of coming out. It was really an eye opener, and this is the moment where I, when I started the the photographic project. You know, uh, it's going back to 1993. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I was sort of quite amazed by by what I saw, and sort of I said, okay, I'm I'm going to to shoot and start following it because immediately I found that it attracted me you know there was something there under the of course the mediterranean sun all this minimalist and and uh, uh, expressive architecture that uh, you know marked uh, the beginning of my project and the
0: big international interest the boom of of tourists and it also this
2: this took longer this took longer but certainly the the unesco declaration made a big change yeah
1: uh, I'm wondering: Is mo- are most of the cities because uh, most of the buildings because many of them are not iconically Bauhaus? Maybe I guess what you would call something that's not bow- recognizable as Bauhaus to an amateur. Some of them just seem kind of like blocks. Are those also considered modernist buildings? the The buildings that are just kind of like, you know, just block like structures that are uh, maybe without balconies. Are those also modernists that were built in the 1920s or 30s or the or no, 30s then, and 40s?
2: No, they normally they follow the, the Bauhaus period. Uh, normally the you know post 48 buildings, you know, ah, which I see, still I very see. much influenced by the by yeah. the modernist architecture because they're still very simple, minimalistic. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But because of the the harsh economic situation here after 48, a the quite a few, Mm. I call them gestures, you know, that you see architectural gestures that you see in Bauhaus buildings that disappear because they're simply too expensive to to execute.
0: Which leads us to Eagle's Guide to How to Locate a Bauhaus Building in Five Easy Steps. <laughs> so, <laughs> how okay. can I trace one?
2: Okay, normally we're t- we talking about cubic articulation, to so think about a, a white cube. Sometimes it's carried up on these, r- you know, round columns, the, the pilotis and there you have this little garden, the, the, you know, on this street side going underneath the building. Uh, so, cubic articulation, very simple lines. The balconies, you know, that's very typical. Uh, Either cantilevered one coming out from the main volume or recessed being cut into the main volume, and then you have more shade. Uh, That's one thing. And then there are what uh, this among these nice gestures, uh, what we call the nautical allusions, the element of the pergola on the roof which sometimes is really minimalist, just this floating beam going around the edge of the roof, the roof, which, by the way, that's another, bar, uh, you know, modernist architecture, architecture thing, an idea which also comes from Le Corbusier, because it's the roof terrace. The roof is a communal space to be used by all the build- all the people living in the building, by the tenants, you know, it's mm-hmm. a, either recreation, either functional for drying the laundry, having a party, etc. And on many roofs, you can see this pergola element. Which no there,
1: space is left. Unattended. No, no, no. no Today no. it's just for water heaters,
2: and for for people who want to have their penthouse up there. Yeah, you yeah. know, and pay a lot of money. So
1: pergolas, pergolas,
2: uh, what we call the unifying vertical element, very present, and these are the windows, the window panes running all along the staircase, which you can see on the street side, mm. so, nicknamed thermometer. Exactly, the thermometer uh, windows element. Uh, which again lets natural light and ventilation into the space of the building. And they are playing, this unifying vertical element is playing against the horizontal lines created by the balconies. Because the the balcony element is creating strong horizontal lines which are... also typical for the l- urban landscape because you put one building next to the other and it's sort of continuous horizontal li- mm-hmm. lines of the created by the balconies. And the horizontality is a big thing in, in modernist architecture' I'm not talking about cathedrals going up to God. We're talking about you know the strong horizontal lines yeah and there
1: are thing, spots in the city like angle of circle exactly. which it feels like Absolutely. the whole circle is just one large balcony yeah, yeah
2: yeah and that's one of the most beautiful examples for both this horizontality and another element that you see that we call the double layer wall mm-hmm. now the walls of the buildings are not load bearing okay the rainforest concrete structure is carrying up the building so the wall becomes an like the skin of the building, and you can play with it the way it's beautifully done on, on the of uh, circle. You know, you have the outer wall with the big horizontal openings, the scale of which relate to the public space outside. And then behind it, then there is the recessed balcony. And then the second wall with the openings relating to the resi- residential space behind it. Mm. And that's another intermediate space in between these two walls, which is normally shaded you know which is multifunctional because you can do several things there and that's also typical for for this adaptation on of the style the european style to the local conditions and dizzying of circle is one of the most beautiful examples of it you see it there's right something
1: place. almost like listening to the philosophy of the style there's something almost uh i dare say uh like com- communist i'm gonna say communist but i don't mean it in a in a Negative. Well, I mean, I don't know if I don't mean it in a negative way, because I don't want to be caught saying communist in a non negative way, but there's something almost communist about it in the sense that or Soviet about it, that's the sense that it's very communal. Meaning it's very it's very first of all, the functionality right. is is very, I guess, uh Soviet. But also the fact that, you know, we need to consider the facade and how it how it looks from the outside to the community. Mm-hmm. There's something very uh, you know, in especially when you look at Bauhaus from the outside and you walk along the street and it all seems kind of like these buildings standing in uh in order you know
2: yeah yeah, I yeah. wonder. there if is there's... this uniformity there is this uni- absolutely there is this uniformity it, cre- cre- it, created it, created by this style. on the other hand when it's well designed you know each building has a character of itself mm-hmm. you can still say yeah it's part of the whole it's not boasting okay it's very sort of conscious of, that, of the fact that I'm one off mm-hmm. but still when you start looking at what I call the gestures you see these little touches which give it you know it, it's a, cert- a certain character but it's a modest argue- well you know and that's one of the ideas of the of the of this modernist architecture it, it certainly talks about modesty you know besides the functionality it's it's certainly modest and Mm -hmm. and simple and minimalist you know Mm -hmm. so it go it goes together but it also i mean there there are all kinds of
0: contradictions because it's it's the unity comes also from the german uh you know um, culture of seeking perfection and stuff like that and in the end of the day, it does celebrate individualism in the sense that when you're inside your apartment, you are the king in these, in these apartments. If you've been inside them, everything is, is perfect for you and it's, it's spacious. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in that sense, it's anti-communism because it doesn't try to... to and, and if you go to Berlin and you go to a communist neighborhood and then you go to the Swiss Quarter in the north which is a Bauhaus neighborhood, you can definitely see the differences. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, you
2: are touching exactly on a point. One of the big differences between the housing which was constructed in Tel Aviv to the examples that you brought up from Berlin and other places in Europe is that those modern buildings were cons- designed and constructed for the working class by, you know, by architects. In Tel Aviv it wasn't the case except for maybe for the Meonot of Dim, the the those are the exceptions. The, work. the workers' dormitories. Yeah. yeah, those are the four <coughs> the four compounds in Tel Aviv, but they make the exception. In Tel Aviv what you had is this architect working for a clientele, you must say bourgeois clientele people from their same class, you know, uh, friends, etc., etc., it's not, they did not design really for the working class. And that's, you know, one of the, you know, things in Tel Aviv. Uh, it's, uh, you know, behind Baha'us Bauhaus school, there are all these big social ideas, but finally, they took the architectural style and left beside the, uh, the social <laughs> ideas, you know, it's a bourgeois city. And those buildings, although again some of them are very modest, but still, as you describe, they are very comfortable inside. Nothing to do with communism, you know. Mm-hmm. The, the the spaces are wonderful, even if the rooms are not so large. Still, the ceiling in this in this you know Bauhaus building sometimes goes up to. The height of the ceiling is 3.5 meters. So even in small rooms, you have a wonderful sense of space. And those were great architects. They knew really how to design, you know, the space and the, the continuation of space, the relationship to the outside, etc. So that's really the exception. The real place, besides the um, workers' uh, cooperative habitation, you know, the monot of them, the only other places in uh, Israel at the time that you could find the real combination between the architecture and the social ideas behind it were the kibbutzim. Okay? Mm. And you find in the kibbutzim structures from the 1930s, mostly either the children houses or the dining rooms, dining halls, which were also the cultural center Mm -hmm. of the kibbutz, designed by some of the leading architects, uh, modernist
1: architects. Maybe uh, before we before before we finish, you can give us kind of if someone had to pick, I don't know, three buildings in Tel Aviv that were the most. It's funny to say spectacular about Bauhaus, but the most spectacular Bauhaus buildings they could uh, they could uh, find.
2: Well, I'd go. I'd start with with Dizengoff. Uh, uh, we call it uh, square, and it's a circus, a circle. That's one beautiful example, mm-hmm. no doubt, by Jenny Averbuch, lady architect, uh, amazing story. She was 25 at the time when she won the competition because it was competition run by the city hall to create this continuous uniform facade, okay, and she won it. Uh, that's quite an amazing story when you think about it. Uh, we are talking about 19, yeah, 1934. So that's one example. The other example is certainly what I mentioned, the Engelhaus uh, on the corner of Rotel Boulevard and Maze, which is in also there as much as it is influenced by Le Corbusier. There is a local adaptation, you may say, because had it been a Le Corbusier building, the walls would be completely flat and there will be just strips of windows. And there Rechter is sort of thickening the wall uh, around the windows and gives it a, a sort of an extra plasticity which, of course, under the local sun is is really making it into a much more expressive uh, facade. And that's, uh, you know, talking about the modification, the adaptation, you know, the this way he gives more depth to the window and protects the interior from the direct sunlight which mm-hmm. was the main concern okay so it's, it's interesting it's uh, uh, it's one of the most beautiful uh,
1: another gesture as you've put it yeah and the third
2: one i'll take the you know the Libling house which is going to be the heritage center mm-hmm. on edelson street we uh, get, uh, this one was designed by another great architect uh, um, Carmi okay of Carmi and uh, again there on one hand uh, this minimalist and functional facade and there the nice thing about the heritage center is that you'll have a chance uh, to go into a real bar apartment and feel the interior which is you know something people always ask me about you know are we going to visit uh, apartments well unfortunately not because uh, it's private people etc but there uh, they will keep i think on the last last second or third floor they will keep the apartment in its original state so you can really feel the engine also the ingenuity of the of the interior it's not a question of interior design but the interior spaces you know mm-hmm. because we are not talking about furniture etc you know the the flow of spaces the relationship of the living room to the balcony etc you know how and that's And they keep
1: it without furniture
2: i'm not sure oh, okay. i'm not not, sh- mu-
0: sh- not much i've been there not much uh, fr- No, no no, furniture.
2: no so
1: see. you can really feel the
0: space mm-hmm. you can really feel
2: the space and it's one of the really uh, one i want to add
0: two buildings can i add <laughs> two buildings okay so to me uh hadar building it's an amazing because your examples are great, but they're not, uh, like, I love the huge ones. So yeah. I so Hadar building, which is in Arkevet, uh, wh- yeah. where is it? Mm-hmm. No.
2: in The corner of Arkevet and uh, Begin Road.
0: Yes, it's a huge uh, Bauhaus building, you know, it's round and huge. Never mind. Okay. And the, the other one is the ship building, yeah. close by, mm-hmm. in the corner of help me out, Levanda. And, yeah, uh, around there, I'm not sure.
2: But the first example that you bring up uh, is a commercial building. Yes. Okay, uh, the, the three examples that I brought up it's are really, are really residential <laughs> and you're right. There is a wonderful example at the corner of B and Achlat Benyamin. Okay? Yes. Okay, which, uh, you know, is li- a bit like uh, your first example, it's a commercial building. Yeah. And, those are interesting because they do create a sort of a continuity and they think about this, you know, of really of the building being part of a of an urban landscape unlike the residential building where which stand each, alone Exactly. Yeah. So and they they have very strong horizontal lines. The Hadara building and the the Polishuk, it's called the now it's the yeah. Polyhouse right. hotel there. So the the it's a strong element on the you know making sort of a continuity uh, in the, urban the street facade and of course
0: yeah. the best Bauhaus building maybe in the world in my opinion is the Talpiot market in Haifa which if yeah. you like uh, I architecture you were house. no <laughs> if you like architecture you gotta check it out it's spectacular
2: yeah there is a spectacular uh, heritage there and hopefully one day the preservation department at the city hall you know it will bring is it the, to it, the heights that... Uh,
1: is that the one that
0: sticks out of the uh, landscape, kind of? No. No? I mean, it does, but I don't think you'd, you have seen it. It's how, how many stories is it? It's not high. Ah, okay. It's like okay. a few it's, stories. Are
1: there any ba- Bauhaus buildings that are higher than four or five stories?
2: In, uh, well, the ship one is... The ship one is like five. Yeah, it's, I think it's five. It,
1: I, one
0: but
2: of the th- principles of the Bauhaus was not to build high buildings, Right. Well, not, uh, you know, not necessarily that if, if there was a functional reason to build it high, but uh, they, they would build high, but they're certainly not the skyscrapers or the towers right. uh, towers of today. Um, but think about it, that those buildings, most of the residential buildings in Tel Aviv at the time, if not all of them, didn't have elevators. Right. Okay, so, yeah. so you'd have s- normally two or three mm. stories and then... One more to get to the roof, and yeah. uh, and this heat,
1: it's <laughs> kind of a bitch to climb that many stairs. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> so egal you do tours.
0: If people want to check you out and and go to one of your tours, how do they do so that? So they
2: write. I have the my site which is called Tel Aviv Baha's dot com, and you write to egal at Tel Aviv Baha's and then you know. We, Find the right date, and
0: uh, you do it in the rain. You do it in a forty degrees heat. You do it. All very few
2: people. I must admit, very few people come in the forty degrees uh, heat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This uh, the, <laughs> the <laughs> most of the most of my my guests uh, prefer to come starting you know sort of september late september when it's getting you know when it's nice to to walk around and uh, yeah and uh, appreciate it but so guys
1: check out igal gavze yeah um tel aviv bauhaus walk he does private tours right up right. to uh, six seven people uh, yeah depends six. starting
2: from one person yeah uh, normally you know it's uh, it's going up to six seven right yeah. it's
1: worth it guys it's yeah, beautiful. if you want a really enriching experience about uh, the Bauhaus movement in Tel Aviv, with obviously an incredibly knowledgeable source, then uh, check him out. Uh, and on social media, also like Facebook. Yeah, uh, there
2: is a. I have a face. Uh, you know, not a private one, but uh, the walk- Facebook page. Yeah, Facebook yeah. page. Yeah. So I'm and.
1: sure if you guys search Tel Aviv Bauhaus Walk on Google.
0: And we'll put links too. So before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles, which is an incredible uh,
1: Jewish news outlet. And you should really check them out at jewishjournal.com. And, and uh, we accept donations, guys, because we do this on our free time. So if you want to go to 2njb.com slash donate and throw us a bit of cash, we will not object.
0: <laughs> if they want to go. If. No okay we're gonna we're gonna force them okay go Go. guys go (laughs) okay Igor, thank you so much for coming
2: thanks a lot for having me thank you
0: bye